So welcome to our panel at the Texas Tribune Fest about serving in Congress in the Trump era. We are very honored to have two men who have both attended the University of Texas, although one graduated from North Texas, and I'm also alumni, so uh, I like being in Hogg Auditorium. And uh, so on my immediate left, I have Congressman Henry Cuellar, who is from Laredo, and he's been serving in Congress since 2004. And one of the reasons I'm excited to have him here today is that he is an appropriator, which is inside Washington jargon for he helps decide how we spend our money. And if there was anything I was told in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, the four most people, or five most important members of Congress from our state are John Cornyn, the Senate Majority Whip, and the four appropriators. And this is a bipartisan effort, and he's a Democrat, so he will be leading the Democratic efforts from the state of Texas to get as much funding for Harvey as possible. And on my further left is Dr. Michael Burgess, congressman from Louisville. He was elected in 2002. And he is the most important Texan from Congress on the healthcare issue. He has a very powerful committee chairmanship. And I once asked him if he was the quarterback of the efforts for healthcare reform, and he, he said, I'm the water boy, but he's very important on this issue. <laughs> and um, I can tell you both, I follow these guys around the Capitol, I annoy them, I ask them questions, and they very much believe in their issues, they work hard, and I'm very honored to have them here uh, talking to us about their lives in Congress. Thanks, Abby. I'm going to start this off with a very sad anecdote about my life as a reporter in Washington. <laughs> um, the flow, the energy, everything in Washington changed at 12 p.m. January 20th, 2017, when Donald Trump was elected or inaugurated as president. From then on, weekends, nights, early mornings, you never knew what news was going to come, and that uh, kept me on my toes. And at the peak of the healthcare debate in February-ish, I ended up resorting to using my wine glasses to drink coffee because I didn't even have time to wash my dishes. And that is sort of the emblematic thing of Washington. And so I wanted each member to kind of, starting with Mr. Cuellar, to talk about how things have changed, how you've adjusted. Um, are you tired? Are you excited? Um, how do you feel about this new era? All right. Well, thank you, Abby. Thank you so much. And to the Texas Tribune and, of course, my good friend, uh, Michael, the doctor. We call him the doctor because uh, he's an MD that uh, is very good at health care. Um, listen, every time there's a, a new president, there's always a new rhythm. You, know, you have a new Congress, you have a new president, and it sets a rhythm in how we do our work. You had President George Bush. That was a certain rhythm. Uh, you had President Obama. You had a certain rhythm. Uh, but then when President Trump got elected, it was very different, definitely very different, simply because uh, everything, a lot of the traditional norms that we had were just changed. I mean, how many presidents do you have that are tweeting? How many presidents do you have that are able to send out a tweet and, and, and basically have the media, uh, members of Congress and other folks of uh, uh, fellows follow what he does. So it's changing. It's a very faster pace because it's, it's not the same type of steady work under a re, what I call a traditional Republican administration or a Democratic administration. So it's a lot different. 
Uh, it looks like there's a lot more activity in many ways. It's faster than what we've had, and you're right. I've talked to reporters, I've talked to members of Congress, and it's, it's a faster pace because of what he does uh, with his thumbs. Um, but nevertheless, in Congress, in many ways, most of the issues that we're working on, we're still doing the same thing. Uh, for example, I, I said it in the appropriations, uh, and it's a very bipartisan way. Uh, a committee, and in fact, if we had it our way, if all the decisions were made by the appropriators, I think we wouldn't go into a lot of the drama that we sit, that we currently see right now, that we have a budget, that we do a CR, continued resolution, that we have a shutdown. I think a lot of it would happen. So on one level, you got the presidential current, and Congress in many ways, in many ways, not all, but at least in our committee, it's the same type of work that we're doing but unfortunately, certain items come in. For example, the president wants a wall. You know, the Republican majority is in many ways following him on that or certain things. But in many ways, it's, it's a rhythm that we have not seen before. Dr. Burgess, what do you think? Well, it's, uh, when I came in, was that right after the, the midterm election in 2002? So the Bush administration was already there and established. They'd gone through their transition. Um, I did see when President Obama came in, the transition meant things were different for us, but Henry is correct. There is a certain rhythm to the congressional year, and after you pick up on it, some things become predictable. You're going to have the swearing in, or, or uh, if it's not an election year, uh, the first Congress that, uh, of the year that convenes, the State of the Union is given at the State of the Union. The President lays out the priorities. Shortly after that, the President's budget is produced. The House produces a budget. Senate produces a budget. Allegedly, then, these guys get to work uh, on appropriations, which we do through the summer months. And then by September 30th, it's all wrapped up. And then we spend the balance of the year batting cleanup on any items that didn't get done. Now, doesn't, that's in theory. And it, uh, it has really been several years. Now, we talk about President Trump being the disruptor, but here for the first time in the first year of the new administration of President Trump, the Congress, the House, has passed all 12 appropriations bills before the end of the fiscal year. That hasn't happened since, what, 2006 or 2007? So it has been, even though he's the disruptor and things are different under his watch, um, actually, the House got its work done. Now, the Senate is still lagging behind, as they typically do, and it's hard to vote for an appropriations bill because it either spends too much money or doesn't spend enough, so there's always a reason to be a no vote on an appropriations bill. Um, but I'm hopeful that the House setting this standard or resetting this standard in the age of Trump, the Senate is now going to understand that if we're going to do the people's business, we have to correctly spend the people's money that allows the appropriators to go through their, I mean, you went through how many subcommittee hearings and full committee hearings, and then we did it all at the rules committee, we did it on the house floor, we voted till late into the night, but that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way our summers are supposed to be spent. And a lot of criticism, I'm, a, I'm an authorizer, Henry's an appropriator. <clears throat> the difference between the two, just so you know, I try to take at least one trip every term out to the National Institute of Health. And the National Institute of Health is a beautiful campus, big, beautiful buildings, 
And they're all named. And they're all named for appropriators. I have never been in a building that is named for an authorizer. So I get the difference. Uh, we do the work, we do the, we do the tough slog, we have the hearing, we decide uh, what needs to be done, and then, and then Henry comes in and writes the check at the last minute, gets all the credit. On the appropriator, this is sort of off topic, but if you, I used to cover West Virginia politics, and the senator, he's now deceased from there, who was the most powerful appropriator like ever, Robert Byrd, everywhere you go, there is a Robert Byrd building, bridge, tunnel, so it, there's no underestimation of that power. Um, Dr. Burgess, I want to ask you, so at the beginning of this administration, and continuing on, a lot of particularly Republicans have avoided town halls. You jumped in and did town halls right off the bat. You go on MSNBC and you, you don't back down from your conservative principles, but you seem to be fearless when it's facing down people challenging you, and there are not very many members of Congress who are comfortable doing that. Kind of give me some into your mindset of that. Well, that's part of our, <clears throat> part of our obligation to talk to our constituents, and town halls are just one of the ways we have of communicating with constituents. It's one that I've always found interesting and <laughs> not always helpful, but uh, certainly educational. The year that I voted for uh, the debt limit in 2011, it was really hard doing town halls that August. They were very, people were very angry. People on the right were very angry. You gave President Obama everything he wanted and you didn't get a thing for it. But it turns out we got the sequester and now we, uh, we actually were able to bend the spending curve or hold the line on spending a little bit. So I, I look back at that vote and say, hmm, maybe it wasn't all that bad. But it doesn't matter what the issue is. If you put out a notice that you're doing a, a town hall, a general town hall, and, and people get it, and they say, oh, look, uh, Congressman's doing a town hall tonight. What do you say we go down there and hear what he has to say? No, I like everything he's doing. I'm good. I don't need to go. <laughs> but if you're mad, <laughs> man, you're there. And you come with a printed out list of things you're mad about, and you line up at the microphone early. So that's typically what I hear, whether it be on the right or the left. And that's just... Uh, the time I've been in office, that's just been something that's it's part of the it's part of the congressional year. We we do have an obligation, I think, to hear from our folks. I will say this: this August, the town halls. We I don't ever require that uh, there be a police department there, but we always tell our communities what we're doing. We're going to be in your in a high school in your community this weekend, and we're doing a town hall. <clears throat> Maybe it's because of the shooting at the, at the baseball practice, but the police presence at the last two town halls I did, I've never seen, I've never seen anything quite like it. Uh, normally we'll have maybe one or two uniformed officers standing at the back of the room, and uh, that's enough and sufficient for people to be polite. Um, right after uh, Gabriel Giffords was injured at uh, doing a, a, a sort of a low-power low congressional event in a, in a parking lot, I had one of the police departments ask if they could set a magnetometer up at the and as people came in, and I thought, no, you know, you really can't. You can't ask people to go through uh, uh, that. And they were they were good. They backed off. But this summer, it uh, the, the the number of, of of law enforcement there, the plainclothesmen that are there, it really was to me. It was startling that there is. It has become that hard for me to go and interact with constituents. So that, that's actually something I hadn't thought of, but in mid-June, I was reporting on the Senate side. 
And I turned to a friend, a reporter friend, and I said, something's in the air and it's bad. I don't feel good being here. Uh, two days later, I play on a women's softball team that it's reporters versus female members of Congress. The day before, I had gone to the female practice to scout them. And um, I'm at my own practice the next day, and Carl Hulse, famous congressional reporter at the New York Times, is our coach, and he said, practice is over, there's been a shooting. And I go into the dugout, and one of my friends says, Steve Scalise has been shot, and it's bad. We all took our bags. I went to the shooting scene in baseball cleats. And uh, all I could think about was, what if they'd gone for the women yesterday? There's no dugout and the female practice facility to dive into like at the men's. Um, Kevin Brady, who was at the practice, congressman from the Woodlands, pointed out to me that if the pitchers that day had not been given the day off to rest before the game, they would have been trapped in the bullpen right by the shooter. This is an unreal story. I did not get into politics to cover this kind of thing. I'm supposed to cover the best of America. Are y'all afraid for your safety? Congressman Cuellar? Well, I mean, uh, certainly there is a... Um, um, a new sense of lack of civility out there, no ifs and no buts in so many ways. Uh, people, um, and, I, and I'm talking about not only uh, constituents, but I'm talking about also even members, the way they talk to certain folks. There's just no sense of civility anymore. I grew up, um, you know, under the way, you know, from my parents, you know, you treat everybody the way you want to be treated. And there's just no sense of civility out there uh, anymore. And I see it. Um, I mean, sometimes, quite honestly, I see it in Congress, and I certainly see it out there in communities. So it's one of those things. I mean, but do we go around and with security, uh, uh, like the administration does, or certain cabinet members? We don't do that. I mean, we're out there, and um, uh, but you know, there, there, there's just a, a very different um, uh, environment out there. There, no ifs or no buts about it. Dr. Burgess, what are your thoughts? Is that why you're always, always uh, over on the Republican side in our Texas row? Oh, yeah. You come uh, over there for, for solace I, and protection? Because I, I, I go on the Republican side to see how the, uh, the lions are working. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, um, again, every, every situation is a little different. I can't say that um, from a security standpoint, it's something I spend a lot of time worrying about. I mean, as Henry knows, average member of Congress doesn't have a security detail. Um, and it was only because Steve Scalise was at that practice that there was actually uh, someone who was there to return fire. And that, uh, had, had, had he not been there that morning, and what a tragedy, he, he was the one that got uh, very severely injured. Um, but without him being there, it would have been much more, it would have been significantly worse. Yeah. Um. So I want to get to a couple of issues. Um, most on the radar right now in this moment, which if I don't get to an issue you care about, understand that's my life every day. <laughs> There's an issue that I think I'm going to write about and then the world changes an hour later. But um, most immediately, Dr. Burgess, where are we on health? How did we get here on health care and where are we going? All right, next question. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, you're asking me to predict the future where the Senate's involved and that's, it's just... It's hard to do. I would have predicted that we would have been past this point many months ago. Uh, I will admit it was harder on the House side than I thought it would be. Remember, 
that the House had passed, um, under Senate reconciliation rules, had passed the major pieces of a repeal bill in December of 2015. President Obama vetoed that repeal bill, and our statement to his veto was, okay, if we get the White House, that's what we're going to do. So when I met with my counterparts at the State House and State Senate in December of 2016, I said, look at the bill we passed a year ago, and that is likely going to be what we will be doing. Now, that didn't happen, and there were people who were concerned that if we passed a bill that is basically a repeal bill, remember that, that reconciliation individual mandate, employer mandate, got rid of most of the taxes, got rid of the Obamacare subsidies, got rid of the Medicaid expansion in two years' time. So um, there were people, um, moderates and conservatives as well, and the president himself tweeted out that, well, you're going to have to do some replace along with repeal. It can't be a repeal-only bill. So that's January. And I know we don't get credit for it, but we did several hearings in the Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Health. Um, they went like 18 hours? Well, like. those hearings did not because oh, okay. no one really wanted to, I mean, it, they just became slugfests and Obamacare was bad, what you're doing is worse. And I mean, that's really the, was the sum total of the discussion. So the fact that hearings weren't continued was only because they weren't productive. We did do, we produced a bill that was based on the 2015 reconciliation. So it's not like it hadn't been through Committee on Energy and Commerce and Ways and Means on the House side, Senate Finance on the Senate side. I mean, it had been through the regular committee process. Uh, the changes that were made were made to add more replace elements to the base of repeal. And we marked that bill up in an open fashion no amendments were not limited in any way. They were, uh, the votes were not limited in any way. We went for 28 hours. Um, I was going to say one night, but it was throughout the day and read the bill during the markup. It was not a terribly long bill. So people say, well, you didn't even read the bill. Well, in fact, we did. We read it in committee because one of the Democrats objected to the bill being considered as read. So the clerks read the bill and, and off we went. Um, then to follow that, we had 18 hours. I'm also on the Rules Committee, and that bill came to the Rules Committee. We had 18 hours of debate. Speaker, uh, I'm sorry, Minority Leader Pelosi and uh, Steny Hoyer came and for three hours talked about how great the Affordable Care Act was and what an open process it was when it passed. But I was there. It wasn't an open process when it passed. But nevertheless, uh, people forget that the time invested in this thing on the House side was significant. We had to go back to rules two additional times to add amendments where people said, well, we're not going to vote for it because it doesn't have this or because it has that. Uh, the bill was pulled from the floor one afternoon on the House side, which I thought was a mistake. The Rules Committee had already provided same-day authority, which meant we could have stayed through the weekend uh, until we got that thing done. Uh, we went home instead, and I did think that was an error. Um, but three to four weeks later, it came back early May of this year, did pass, went over to the Senate in plenty of time for them to get it done before the Memorial Day recesses, which is what they said they wanted to do, except that they didn't. So they had plenty of time to do it before the 4th of July recess, which is what they said they were going to do, except they didn't. Pl 
plenty of time to do it before the August recess, and then turns out they weren't ready then. The bill, as it's changed, the so-called Graham-Cassidy bill, um, <clears throat> what I have tried to get my subcommittee staff to do is to prepare, we don't know completely what the bill is at this point, but try to prepare uh, a side-by-side -side for members of the House. You know what you voted for in May. This are, these are the things that are the same. These are things that are different. So people will be able to, in a short period of time, work through the process of, is this something that I can support or something that I will not be able to support? The House, unfortunately, will not have a great deal of time. The Senate, if it does vote, will be midweek or later. The Senate Budget Committee or the Senate Parliamentarian has said, this must happen by uh, the 30th at midnight. The House, strictly speaking, could vote on it the following week, but I think everyone is, is anxious to, if the Senate passes, let's get it evaluated. It's not gonna take a lot of time. You're gonna have to decide yes or no, are you in or out? And that's really where, where we will be. Congressman Cuellar, you're pretty much considered one of the Democrats who's most approachable to Republicans. Um, and Dr. Burr just kind of alluded to that. Did you ever think of supporting the healthcare legislation that came through the House? Was it early oh, on? Oh, heck no. Uh, I'm, I'm bipartisan, but I'm not gonna vote on a, on a piece of legislation that I think does a lot of harm. I voted for the healthcare. Uh, I voted for the healthcare law uh, some years ago. Uh, it was not a perfect bill, but I always know that when you pass a piece of legislation, you always come back and fine tune the things that work and don't work. Uh, the problem was, to be fair on both sides, the Democrats, when we were in power, they didn't want to make any changes. They acted like it was a perfect bill. Then the Senate, uh, I mean, then the Republicans wanted to just repeal the whole thing. Uh, so we had two extremes and nobody wanted to sit down and talk and see what works. You keep that. What doesn't work, you either modify it or change it. Uh, then, of course, the Republicans come in and they, they control the White House, the Senate, everything. So they go back from, instead of repeal, to a replace uh, something. But the replacement, and my thing is, if you're going to go from one, without due respect to the doctor, and if you're going to knock out, and there's different proposals, and we still haven't seen this one because they still haven't come out with the numbers, but if you're going to knock out 16 to 32 million, and if you think that's doing no harm, then we're living in two different worlds, without due respect to my colleague here. Or if you're going to focus on premiums, but you're not going to uh, uh, find a way to lower the premiums, then you're not doing the job. The piece of legislation uh, is, is, in my opinion, uh, what they're trying to do is one that will knock out millions of individuals, even though we, don't, we haven't seen the numbers, it's going to knock off millions of individuals from health care. And if you're proud about that, vote for that. But I think that's wrong. Second of all, there is some feel-good language that says that pre-existing uh, in the bill itself, in the Cassidy uh, bill, it says uh, what I call feel-good language saying pre-existing uh, uh, conditions are not going to be affected. But it's feel-good because then you leave it up to the states to decide. And with all due respect to the state of Texas... You get a state like Texas, you know what's going to happen. They will get rid of uh, some of those. Plus, it has mental, uh, look what they do to mental and maternal care under this piece of legislation. And if you feel that if Congress can't handle this and you're going to say, 
Uh, we're going to give a block grant to a, to a state. And by the way, they pick winners and losers. By coincidence, the states that were doing the Obamacare lose billions of dollars. And the states that were anti-Obamacare, had no state exchange insurance, are benefited by getting billions of dollars. Now, might be a coincidence. I'm not, not putting a motive anybody, but it just happens to be a motive. But basically, they're saying, well, Congress can't do it, so we're going to send it off to the state. Plus, they put a short limit where they have to put, I think, 2020 to set up state exchange uh, uh, plans out there for the different states. So they set up a, a different thing saying, by the way, in 2027, monies will be gone. Now, will Congress go ahead and still appropriate that money? We know what happens when those tough decisions come in. So again, my thing has been, and I am a Democrat, but I believe that we ought to work in a bipartisan way. But I'll go back to this point to answer your question. At the beginning of the year, we called Mark Short, which is the, he used to be the chief of staff for K. Bailey Hutchinson. He's now the White House legislative liaison. We said, hey, we're the blue dogs. We want to see if there's anything we can work with. This is what, what he said to us back in February. He said, except for healthcare, we can talk about taxes, transportation, and other items. Except for healthcare. That was it. Except for healthcare. Now, a couple of weeks ago, and I'll finish with this, a couple of weeks ago when the president asked a couple of Democrats and Republicans to sit down with them, there were, there, were, there were blue dogs, mainly blue dogs, but there were a couple of Republicans and Democrats. Who were, there's only, there's well, only two blue dogs left. Uh, well, yeah. So, to, I'm going what's a blue dog? Yeah, a blue dog is a moderate Democrat. Yeah, there's only it, two it, of well, you. Let me, let, now, Michael, you're supposed to be a nice guy, so let's just, let me finish my thought here. So, so what happened was we met with the president, and Tom Reed, a Republican, and Josh, uh, this other uh, uh, from uh, New Jersey, they're the head of the uh, no labels or problem uh, solvers. And they said, Mr. President, we have an idea, a bipartisan way to help stabilize the market, the health market. And the president said, does it repeal? They said, no, 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 we're not focusing on repeal. We're focusing on trying to stabilize the market. And the president kept saying, does it repeal? And he said, no, no, we're trying to, this is a piece of bipartisan solution to help stabilize the healthcare. And the president asked for the third time, does it repeal? And they said, no. And they said, okay, well, we'll, we'll talk about that later. The problem is there are extremes out there that don't want to sit down and work things out, bottom line. Dr. Healthcare Hutch, is one I of know them. you want to respond. And we'll move on to Harvey, but one more on uh, healthcare. Oh, there's uh, so much to unpack there. First off, if your insurance is so bad that you won't buy it unless you have the threat of the federal government breathing down your neck, is it a good product? Are you, are you being well served by the people, that are, the people that are offering that product for sale? And are you getting good value for your dollar when you're buying it? And that, therein is the problem. My personal feeling is that the individual mandate that was the centerpiece of the Affordable Care Act fundamentally re-alters the, the relationship between the government and the governed, 
And that is the thing that must be jettisoned. Now, when the Congressional Budget Office looks at that, it says, oh, you repeal the individual mandate? <laughs> well, no one's gonna buy this stuff unless you force them, so they'll all be off their insurance. You're not throwing anybody off their insurance. They would still have a subsidy. They would still be able to buy it, but it's of no value to them. It's expensive. They can't use it. The deductibles are so high, they are functionally uninsured. Now, do bear in mind, we are talking about people in the individual market. And may I just point out, in the state of Texas, for someone previously, before the Affordable Care Act came down the pipe, someone who in the individual market, not in the employer-sponsored market, because you are covered with pre-existing conditions in the, in the ERISA markets, that's federal law also. But in the individual market, in a state like Texas, they had risk pools. And yes, you paid a little bit of a higher premium, but you had insurance available. In fact, the premium that you paid in the risk pool was lower than the premium you're paying now in Obamacare. So Texas did what I thought was a, a very insightful thing in the last legislative session. Uh, Kelly Hancock, who's a state senator from up in the area that I represent, reordered the risk pools in the state of Texas. So those would be, right now, of course, no one is enrolled. There's no, no, no money contained. But if the money were available, those things could be up and running in a very short period of time. So yes, Texas would, would stand to benefit. But to the other point, yeah, there would be an equalization of the dollars that are available. Those states that expanded Medicaid and went full force with the Affordable Care Act, yes, they're getting more money than a state like Texas that didn't do those things. There has to be a way to even things out. And I thought that's what our bill on the House side, the one that we debated for 28 hours in the committee, that was, the, that was one of the main sticking points, was how do you handle a state that expanded Medicaid and a state that didn't expand Medicaid? Because I have members on my subcommittee, members from Virginia, where they worked very, very hard in Virginia to not, even though they had a Democratic governor who wanted to expand Medicaid, their state Senate stood strong and said, we're not going to do that. Uh, those members are going to be reluctant to do anything that crosses their folks who they think did the right thing in, in rejecting that expansion. You have members from New Jersey and Pennsylvania that did expand Medicaid, and they are also concerned about what things look like on the other side. So here's what we did, and I'll just tell you, because even though it's not what's still enduring in the, in the bill that I'm seeing talked about over in the Senate, uh, for, for just the Medicaid expansion, not the traditional blind, aged, disabled kids and pregnant women, able-bodied adults who were in the Medicaid expansion, funded at 100%, with 100% federal match. Anyone who is in that system can stay in that system, but no new people can be enrolled after two years' time. That is, for the next two years, yes, they could, they could still be enrolled. After that two-year time is up, they can stay as long as they stay, but if they come off for whatever reason, they get employer-sponsored insurance, or they lose eligibility for some other reason, they cannot come back on. If those states want to keep those individuals in, in a Medicaid expansion, they can do so at the standard federal match rate, but no longer the 95 or 100% rate. A state like Texas that did not expand, what's in it for Texas? Well, Texas is fixing to lose a lot of money in the disproportionate share hospital dollars that will go away October 1st under current law, under Obamacare. 
uh, your state is fixing to lose three to four billion dollars in dish money. There is also the 1115 waiver, which has yet to be reauthorized or, or, or re in, re-upped, so that's another risk for the state of Texas. Yeah, Texas does have some dollars at risk if we don't get something done. That is why I have felt such intense pressure to get this thing resolved, to get it solved. But Henry, I gotta tell you, your Democratic members in those early hearings where we, you know, we had two on Medicaid, two on, on, on commercial insurance, uh, what did I get? I got, we wanna see Tom Price's stock records. Uh, we're gonna file a resolution of inquiry on this, that, and the other. Now, with all due respect, I mean, I, I actually filed a resolution of inquiry when Henry Waxon was chairman, but I did it the right way, not, not trying to blindside someone in, in committee. I went to the floor of the House and, and made the announcement. It was, it was absolutely fruitless when you can block anything at all that we would try to do by saying, oh, it's, uh, it's not bipartisan. I mean, you, you're, your side has held firm. No one is going to support a Republican on this. Don't blame the president on this. Blame your leadership because they carry the lion's share of this responsibility. Okay. A couple of things. Uh, first of all, 18 hours of hearings with no witness, witnesses, no hospital association, no nurses association, no doctors associations, no advocates, no cancer association, no... See, that's just not true. I let you speak. Let me just... You're, he's supposed to be the nice guy, right? <laughs> he's supposed to be the nice guy. So no hearings from no testimony from anybody, from the ones that do the work every single day. 18 hours that they had to deal with one-sixth of the U.S. GDP. Now, do you think that's appropriate where you have no testimony, everything dealing in 18 hours? Well, the problem is, the problem is, is, is very simple. If you are still going to knock out millions of individuals, is that something we should get up there and say, we did a good job as a member of Congress? I think that's wrong. If you're going to take away the pre-existing uh, 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 conditions, I think it's wrong. And the bottom line is how soon we forget that the individual, mat, uh, uh, individual mandate is a Republican idea. T talk to Mitt Romney when he was governor. Uh, talk to President Nixon uh, when he was president. He advocated. Talk to the Heritage Foundation, one of the most Republican groups out there. They're the ones that were pushing individual responsibility. Now they're running away uh, from trying to find a solution to address this issue. Now, bottom line is this. Bottom line is this. Why can we not sit down and allow witnesses, allow the advocates, the doctors to give their input because there is not one single group that I know, legitimate group out there, that supports this piece of legislation. None. None out there. Ask your doctors, ask your hospital, ask your nurses, ask the cancer advocates, ask anybody out there who supports this. What happened to bipartisanship where we can sit down and talk? That's a problem up there in Washington. People are talking to, uh, at each other, not to each other, at each other instead of uh, with each other. If we're able to do that, and, and you said right, I, am I bipartisan? Yes. But you still need two people to talk to each other. So we're going to move on from healthcare. But as contentious as this last 10 minutes have been, uh, they downstairs in the green room were joking and um, they hugged when they came in. And so. No, no, no. no. There was no, no hugging. Was, okay, <laughs> no, shook hands. No. I take that back. 
I take that back, excuse me. But my question... He's going to buy me a cup of coffee after this. <laughs> so cold. my cold. point is, is that they have a very collegial relationship, yes. but they're still very passionate about their issues. Yes, we are. Now, one of the most interesting things about our delegation is every Thursday, the Republicans meet, and there are 25, 26, and it's this powerful voting block. Because not, the, a, not enough. <laughs> We're working on it. The Texans are, it's the most, it's the largest Republican state voting block in the, in the House. And things can like die over that lunch based on how, if they all want to go as a block. And y'all take a lot of pride in being unified. Now, something interesting happened after Harvey. Congressman Cuellar and Congressman Barton, a Republican, got together and said, we're going to have lunch next week together. And then I think there was another lunch the next week. Democrats and Republicans in the same room. And it sounded like nobody could remember the last time that happened. And it, was interesting. Is this something that might become a habit, either one of y'all? Well, I'll tell you how this happened. I called Joe Barton. I said, hey, Joe, I think this issue that happened uh, to the state of Texas, I think we need to sit down as a delegation. And the last 12 years I've been there, I don't think we've had a sit down, everybody together. This is my first time in 12 years. I'm the, uh, the Texas chair of the um, Democrats. So Joe Barton and I got together and, and actually I hope we do more. Uh, Joe Borden and I are now leading a task force on, uh, on Harvey so we can work with uh, John Sharp, uh, who's been appointed the recovery chairman of that commission that, the, uh, uh, that Governor Abbott set together. And I've been in contact with him, with Billy Hamilton, so we can coordinate. And we're hoping that we can coordinate. Uh, so we might disagree on certain things, but the Texas Democrats and Republicans will stick together on the things that are going to be important. I think Harvey's definitely one of those. So the startling thing to me was that Joe Barton invited all the Democrats to the lunch on the week that I was buying. <laughs> so he doubled your, your so your, your tab went up a little bit. So this, I mean, I mean you all have, do you do not still have a Wednesday afternoon mm -hmm. or Wednesday noon lunch? And that was actually the one that was started by Speaker Rayburn when, when he was Speaker and he had. So that's been happening since Sam Rayburn. Yes, wow. as far as I know, it may have happened before. Yeah. I, I don't know the answer to that, but that was uh, um, when Republicans started to be elected to the congressional delegation. Um, I don't remember quite what the, uh, there was a, a, believe it or not, you're gonna find this hard to believe, but there was a disagreement one day and the Republicans were banned from the speaker's lunch. So wow. when more Republicans were elected, they began to, to meet on Thursdays. Now, Senator Hutchison, when, when she was a Senate appropriator, did have both uh, Republicans and Democrats generally over to her office um, once a month and we would talk about things pertinent to a Senate appropriator. And those were generally pretty well attended, uh, but they were, they were early, so some, some folks don't like to get up uh, uh, that early. But we've done bi bipartisan things. Oh. In fact, Tom DeLay, when I first got there, made a big effort, and then of course we got wrapped around the axle with redistricting in 2003, and that, that came to a quick halt, but it's, uh, there have been efforts over the years to, to, Texas is a big state and second biggest state in the country and does have a, a significant number of, of, of representatives in Washington. And when we work together, we can get things done. So Congressman Cuellar, what would you say to the Houston homeowner who wasn't allowed to buy flood insurance, whose home went underwater, and now their mortgage may be underwater. What, as an appropriator, would you say is the conversation happening in Washington right now to that person? 
Well, I mean, there, there, there's different things that we're looking at. I mean, first of all, as you know, there was an initial $15.2 billion um, uh, monies that went out for the disaster. But keep in mind, that was also, that was only a partial payment for Harvey and for Irma, but also for the forest fires that we have on the West Coast, because some of the other appropriators from the West Coast were saying, hey, don't forget about us. While you're all flooding, we're burning over here. So that was the initial one. There will probably be another. Uh, I mean, there will be definitely other ones. Uh, and, and we're hoping that we, you know, continue providing funding, not only to FEMA, but also the different agencies, because there's other different needs. You got CWG monies that you got to look at. You got to look at um, uh, other areas that will be getting the, the uh, uh, funding itself. But also, you got to look at uh, making sure that we coordinate with the state, because I used to be in the state legislature when we created the rainy day fund. In the rainy day fund, and I might be off by a few dollars, but there's almost $10 billion in there. So I've said the state should also do the same thing because the state was very good at attacking the federal government saying we're spending too much money and now they're saying we need cash over, over here. And I think the state should use some of that rainy day fund uh, to address that and understand there's an appropriation meeting at the state level to start looking at you know, what the state's uh, response will be. But there will be different e issues uh, and different funding. There'll probably be another one coming up in October, uh, another appropriations. And I'm sure that when we do the ominous appropriation bill in December, there will be a larger amount at that time. At the same time, we do understand that uh, Chairman Jeb Hensley will be looking at the uh, flood insurance, as you know, it's uh, in the hole in the billions of dollars. Uh, there will be a lot of issues that will come up. Uh, John Cobleson was telling us that in the levee system that they had, they had to release some waters into neighborhoods that were not flooded. So now you got neighborhoods that got flooded. So the question is, if you're an insurance company, if they had insurance, you're going to say, this flooding, was it man-made or was it nature? So if I was an insurance company or an attorney for an insurance company, I would say, hey, go talk to the people who released that water. So there's a lot of issues that are going to be coming in. I hope that a lot of people learned the lesson that when we had Sandy, another one, there were a lot of folks, I'm not going to mention names, that voted against Sandy because they said, oh, you got to take it somewhere to provide that funding. In other words, pay for it. Uh, I hope we don't get into that fight uh, here, because as we look at what happened in, uh, in uh, Irma, what we happened in, um, in Harvey, it's going to take a lot of money. And, and I know that was a big fight, less money that we saw in Sandy, but the big fight among the conservatives well, were, well, wait, 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 oh, do wait, we have to pay for it? Less money in Sandy. There's $30 billion in Sandy that no, hasn't no, no. even been spent. Now, and you don't even know where the money is, so don't get me started on Sandy. Okay. And do not forget that there was never a special appropriation for Ike so, when so, Houston was ravaged so, in 2008. So, so let's so, be so careful about that. As, as you can see... And we I know can, that New Jersey it, kicked it, in their rainy day fund, right? Okay, right? So, so here we are saying that New Jersey and New York have to take a certain position, but Texas is different. And again, I'm going to do everything in Texas, but again, in the big picture for the country... No, you're gotta, making we, something partisan that is not partisan. You're a nice it's guy. One, it's like, one thing to be bipartisan, but you're, you're, there's no need to make this partisan. There has been no argument about this. There was an argument in the other hurricane that we had to pay for it. All I said was, I hope we don't get in that same argument because my position is that when you have a disaster, 
we ought to treat that like a disaster and not say, take it from education, take it from health care so we can fund that disaster. There was an offset during the recovery from Katrina. One half of 1% of all of the non-defense appropriations was, was the appropriations were reduced and in order to offset some of the money that was necessary to rebuild New Orleans. So we, we also can, with Katrina, you'll remember that half the money that Congress sent could not be spent and the Department of Health and or the Department of Homeland Security took it back from FEMA later. Well, again, there was no reason not to do the same approach with Sandy, but for whatever reason, uh, it wasn't. It was different. But you will know this: Ike never received a special supplemental appropriation. So, never with thirty billion dollars in damage. But I will say, may I say this from an agency perspective? I have talked to Dr. Carson about this. I think the ability to be flexible at the agency level with with grants for people who are caught in just the situation that, that you and, and Henry have referred to. I think the agency is likely to be very flexible with that. Um, yes, the governor has been quite outspoken about what some of the needs will be. And, I, you know, look, at this point, no one even knows the price tag. We've had these two major storms. It's going to be weeks before people begin to get the, the earth back under them. Puerto Rico is also going to require some attention, a significant amount of attention, so this will not be cheap. Now, we did have one individual who said it's too bad that we have hurricanes at the end of the fiscal year because all the money's been spent. But the reality is that hurricane season is the same every year, and the fiscal year is always over the 30th of September. Sometimes a storm happens before the end of the fiscal year, sometimes it's after. The money that, uh, that came forward was to refill the till, at HUD, FEMA, and HHS, and I think we did that, but we all know there is going to be subsequent evaluation and subsequent monies that will be necessary. And yes, some of those will be offset. All right, so uh, we will take a few questions from the audience okay. if there are any, and I think we're about to set up a microphone. Um, so if there are any questions, I've got more, but if y'all have some I wanna share. And also, please state a question. Let's not make a lot of statements, so, all right, sir. Hi, uh, my name is Noah Melson. I live here in Austin, Texas. I'm an Army veteran, and I'm also a tech startup co-founder. Um, so my question is for you, Congressman Quayer. Um, I just wanted to know, first of all, I wanted to thank you for your support of the, uh, of the DREAM Act and for protecting 800,000 um, DREAMers. Um, so my question to you is, what are you planning on doing to reach across the aisle for a long-term permanent legislative solution for DREAMers, and what are you doing to try to get that bill on the floor for a vote? Yes, sir. Uh, when, we, when a group of us, when the president asked a bipartisan group to go sit down, uh, we brought up DACA, the DREAMers, and I told the president, I said, listen, there's a lot of people that talk that they support the DREAM, but as long as the speaker doesn't put it for a vote. We're not going to have a vote. My feeling, Mr. President, is that we have the vote right there. I think 99% of the Democrats will vote yes. All we need a few Republicans to vote with us, and we can get to the 218. But we got to have a vote, because we've seen it twice where there is a Dream Act, and we haven't been able to get a vote. If, if the Speaker will put it, we can get it done. Now, the, uh, and the speaker has said that he's for it, but again, so did Boehner, but we never got a vote on it. The president did say 
we will, uh, you will have a vote, it will be on the floor. So I'm hoping that they put it on the floor. Uh, the other thing is there'll be a lot of negotiations. As you know, the speaker did put a informal group of Republicans to work on it. Uh, I got a call by a senator, not from Texas, said, President Trump, after the meeting, asked me to call you because he's also working on a piece of legislation. And I asked the senator, I said, well, can you tell me what you have in mind? Because DREAM Act, and some people want to put border security. But if you add the wall, to me, that's a non-negotiable thing. That's a different thing. Because if, if you equate a wall to a 14th century solution to uh, border security, then you don't understand the border at all. You really don't understand the border. So the president did say at that time, when we met, he said, DACA or Dreamer, strong border security, the wall we can talk about at a later time. The president was good. Now, of course, the next day, they called him Am Amnesty Don, his uh, former employee, and of course, now he said, well, we need a wall. So the question is, can we get to that part about some sort of Dream Act plus strong, sensible border security. We'll deal with the wall at a later time. Thank you. All right, sir. Wait, wait, wait. do uh, I not get to oh, say yeah, anything? Oh, go right ahead. So one of the questions I've asked repeatedly is what do other countries do with their dream kids? They don't have them because you can't do this in other countries. In 2005, your first year in office, we had a bill on the floor, Chairman Sensenbrenner brought the bill to the floor, and it dealt with border security. Some argued that it was too harsh, but at least it took the approach, okay, this is a problem that we're going to have to deal with. Let's at least stop allowing people to fall into this conundrum. So we have 12 years of bringing people into this problem where we haven't done anything. And the security, you cannot divorce the security. You and I have both been down to the, to the lower Rio Grande Valley sector, down at Westlaco and, and McAllen in 2014, when President Obama said, I'm gonna give you a, a, a path in or, or, or a way in, we had 100,000 kids come across the border the next year. And that is the problem that we have to be prepared to address. I mean, does the United States as a country, as a sovereign nation, have the right to define and defend its borders? I say yes. Let's do that first. Yes, we can figure out a solution for whatever the number is, but let's stop putting okay. people in this position. All right, I guess your answer is no, you don't support the uh, DREAM Act that from your answer. So, the, the, look, the, the issue is, I, I live on the border. Yes, we've been to the border. Problem is, I have members of Congress, with all due respect, that go and spend an hour or two, and they think they know the border better than some of us that live, drink the water, we breathe there, we raise our family, we know what the border is. And we spend $18 billion a year on border security. $18 billion a year on border security when you add everything. Problem is that with some of my friends, colleagues, is that they keep moving the goalposts. We've added border patrol, we have the largest amount of border patrol ever. We've added technology. We've added 653 miles of border. It's never enough on border security. They keep moving the post. I think if somebody wants to be against the DREAM Act, just say it. Don't come up with an excuse that we need more border security, border security. Uh, and, and the other thing is, the, the other thing is on border security is some people feel that if you have a wall, that will solve all the problems. 
That will solve the problem. A wall is a 14th century solution. I spend talk about round tables, town halls, whatever. The, the last couple of days I've been with the Border Patrol, uh, their folks, uh, leaders down there on the border the last couple of days, spending time there with them, uh, talking to them about what's the best way to secure the border. And the issue is that, first of all, we start off with private property rights. I believe in private property rights. Uh, most Republicans do, except when it comes to the wall. I also feel that if somebody owns that, that the, the wall, if you put a wall, for example, a wall is a 14th century solution. The latest numbers, for example, in Stark County, part of my country, they want to add 32 miles of fencing. You know how a wall, whatever you want to call it, you know how much money that is? Anybody want to guess? Somebody give me a guess. $792.98 million just for 32 miles. Divide 32 into that, all, more than a three quarters of a billion dollars itself. The problem with the wall is also this, it's so expensive. You have cameras, sensors that will work to address this issue. And the, 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 you know, keep in mind that if you put the most beautiful wall out there, 40% of the undocumented persons that we have in the U.S. came in through a legal permit or visa, which means if you put the biggest wall, somebody's going to fly, somebody's going to drive through a bridge, or somebody's going to go home with a ship. It's not going to stop it. We just got to be smart on how we secure the border. I just have a problem, with all due respect, that people that just go in and go out, like I told Secretary Kelly, without due respect, I told Secretary Kelly, I said, listen, I've been around, I've seen secretaries of, of homelands come and go. And I said, I probably will see you come and go. And of course, two weeks later, he was gone. And we just got to listen to the people that live on the border and, and all. Now, if people want to look at, at uh, addressing uh, uh, issues, listen to us on the border instead of coming in, spending one hour and thinking that you know better than the people at the border. That's what I have a problem with members of Congress with all due respect to you and other folks and that I think, think I that think they understand the I think you have to the acknowledge better. that General Kelly created a great deal of difference in the short time that he was Director of Homeland Security. The, the, the station at Westlaco that I visited in August of last year looked entirely different in May of this year. And the reason was because of the leadership coming out of the agency and the presidency. Disagree, but go ahead. All right, sir. Okay, this wasn't my question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, I hear a lot of talk about border security and, and we need to more secure the border and, and we don't want to do DACA until we have a secure border. And, and to me, that just sounds like buzzwords. It, to me, it sounds like a dodge because I don't know what border security means. Explicitly, specifically, what conditions would apply at, at which time you would say, okay, now we have border security. What would that mean in very explicit terms? Not adding uh, 150 border guards, that doesn't tell me anything. We can do that easy. What conditions would apply and at, at, at that point you'd say, okay, now we can do DACA because now we have a secure border. I don't know what explicitly what it means. When Janet Napolitano was asked during a Homeland Security hearing when she was uh, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, what portion of the, of the uh, U.S.-Mexico border is, uh, is their operational control? And she said 40%. So I would submit to you 40% is a failing grade in that regard. Henry and I were both down at Lackland Air Force Base in 2014. We saw the number of youngsters who had been uh, 
apprehended is not the right word, but they were being processed in, in processing centers that were being stood up very quickly because there, there, there was not the facility to handle them. When the President of the United States said that it's gonna be okay for you to come in, the next thing that happened was the border was flooded. And in spite of all of the money that was spent in previous years, I don't know whether you voted for the Secure Fence Act in 2005 or 2006, I did. Uh, Hillary Clinton did. There were a number of, of folks who did support that as a concept, but the dollars, the dollars were never spent, so it, so it never occurred. I don't disagree with Henry that there is a problem with visa overstays. I think that the, uh, the infrastructure, the, the, the IT infrastructure that is necessary to begin to curtail that, I think it exists, and it just requires the courage to, to use it. Uh, the E-Verify program, again, it will work if it is used. Uh, but for whatever reason, it remains voluntary and not mandatory. So the answer is 100%. <clears throat> well, look. Again, my ask in 2005, if I'm going to be asked to do something that provides a path for legalization for kids who were brought to this country by their parents in 2005, my ask was, can we stop doing that? Can we stop having people that fall into that category? And apparently the answer was no, because I don't know how many of that 800,000 have arrived since January of 2005, but I suspect it's a significant proportion. The, 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 the problem with a lot of my colleagues, to answer your question is, and again, I go back to that, and I say this very respectfully, they don't understand the border. Uh, how do you secure a border? First of all, if you spend $18 billion a year on border security, that's called a one-yard line, U.S.-Mexico border. If we would go to, let's say, the 20-yard line, which is the last time I saw Secretary Kelly before he became Secretary, he's a general, uh, on the border of Guatemala and Mexico. Mexico, we started asking Mexico to you know, help them secure a little bit more of the border with Guatemala. They literally stopped hundreds of thousands of people that were coming up to the border itself over here. And we just got to be smart working with other countries, securing the border, right, using technology. Uh, again, the problem is if somebody's against a wall, they think that they're against border security. And let's look at the wall. Right now, it's estimated about, and there are different numbers, 22, $23 million per mile for one fence. Give me $100, I'll buy a good, fan, a good ladder that will take care of that 22 to $23 million itself. And I mean that, you can do that. The problem also is when you do the, the, uh, the, the, the fence, because of treaty that we have with Mexico, you can't put it right at the, at the, at the bridge, I mean at the, at the riverbank. There are times you have to go up one mile. So imagine, like, uh, without mentioning his name, but I have a constituent in San Ignacio uh, area. Uh, his, he's a veteran. His parents served in World War II. His parents are, are buried by the river. And if you put a fence one mile in, that means that if he's going to go visit the cemetery or go visit the burial place of his parents, he has to go on the other side of the fence. What happens to wildlife? What happens to you know, the, 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 the sensitive areas, the butterfly centers that we have in mission? 
or the, uh, the wildlife uh, refugee that we have down there in Hidalgo County. There's no respect to any of that where you can use technology to address this. The bottom line is people in Washington just think that if you put the fence, that will solve all the issues. Ask me about the Great, China, the Great Wall of China. Ask me about the Berlin Wall. Ask me about the Germans and the uh, French in World War I, and I'll tell you what happens to those, uh, those barriers. Well, that is all the time we have today. Uh, and so I want everyone to give uh, the two congressmen an applause because uh, I want to thank them for having a very passionate debate. And this may seem uh, rudimentary, but there was no name calling. Uh, it was highly respectful. And, but no uh, hugging. They, they no, sincerely Bubba. believe in their, their uh, and we ideology. we didn't call each other Bubba at all. But there was a Bubba downstairs mentioned. So uh, I want everyone to say thank you with a round of applause. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you so sir. Much. Oops, sorry.